the Gospel of John in the 8th chapter. Didn't you enjoy that song this morning? Great song, great song. The Gospel of John, the 8th chapter, I'll read only one verse for our text this morning. And I know that preaching through a book, you have to keep it flowing, keep it going. But just the nature of the text, if we'll only be able to look at this one verse this morning. And I fear that I will be a little bit heavy doctrinally. We're going to look at some different verses. And so I ask you just to give me your attention on purpose this morning. But a great, great text in John 8 and verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John chapter 8 is a continuation of John 7, in that the events and the circumstances of this chapter takes place either the day after or very soon after the events of chapter 7. If you were to go back to chapter 7 to verse 37, You'll find in the temple courtyard that Jesus cries, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And it says very clearly that it is the last day of that great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Then in chapter 8 and verse 2, we read that early in the morning, Jesus came back to the temple to teach. It does not specifically say that it is early in the morning the next day, but it leads us to believe that it's either the next day or very soon thereafter. I've told you that many commentators believe that the conversation that ensues in chapter 8 actually takes place on the last day of the great feast because the story of the woman caught in adultery, they say it is not in the original manuscripts. They actually believe that chapter 7 and verse 53 through chapter 8 and verse 11 that that ought to either be stricken out or footnoted or tabbed some way to say that this was added at another later date by some anonymous scribe. To all of that, we say rubbish. Amen. Rubbish would be the word that we would describe such skepticism and such Bible deniers. But verse 2 plainly tells us that it was after that last day. It's early in the morning. It is the next day or at least a day or two after that. To get our bearings, we come down to verse number 20. Verse number 20 tells us exactly where Jesus was when he begins this debate with the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 20 says, These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Now that is important when you get a little bit of idea of how the, the temple was laid out. The temple was really a temple complex and there were several courtyards with led up to the main structure. The most outer courtyard would have been called the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as the Gentiles are allowed to come. The next court moving inward toward the temple proper would be the court of women. This is where Jewish women can come, but they cannot go any farther. The next court would be the court of priests. They cannot go Beyond that, they could come here but come no closer. 
And historians tell us that it was in that court of women that the priest had set up 13 receptacles, think offering box. They set up these 13 offering boxes around that courtyard where people would come and they would drop their offerings. Historians say that those receptacles had a trumpet-like mouth that you could put your money in and then it would somehow fall into some kind of container below. They even had designated boxes. Or if you were giving a temple tax, it would go in a particular box. If you were paying an offering for it, for a sacrifice, it would go in a different box. So, so offering boxes and designated offerings, that's, that's what they had. And it is in the court of the women. So in verse 20 says that when Jesus was in the treasury, it's telling me that Jesus was in that court of women where Gentiles couldn't come, but all Jews could come. And it was where they had those offering boxes, that treasury, and that's where Jesus is at. Now that has some further significance because historians also tell us that it was in that courtyard that the priest had set up a number of large candles or candelabras or lamps light that would light up the whole temple complex at night. It was called the illumination of the temple. It is especially significant during the Feast of Tabernacles. Here's the reason why. You remember that the Feast of Tabernacles commemorated their wilderness wanderings, the time when Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And you remember that during that wilderness wanderings that God led them about by a light, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was a light that led them in the wilderness and to commemorate that, then the temple officials would light up the temple at night. You remember they had the water ceremony to commemorate the rock and the water. Well, they had a light ceremony. So Jesus is standing in the court of women. That's where the treasury is. And that is also where they would have those lights, those candles, those lamps, or whatever they might be. And if it's daytime, then they have been extinguished. If it's coming evening, then they have just lit that up. That's where Jesus is. And some think that those lights or that lighting ceremony that that prompted Jesus to make the statement, I am the light of the world. He is using something that they're doing to draw attention to himself. It could be as he looks at those candelabras that light up that temple. They've burned down now that it is calm. It could be that Jesus points to one of them and says that I am the light of the world and I never go out. If you will follow me, I'll be a light to you and you will never again walk in darkness. I am the light of the world. I am the light of God. I am the light of salvation. And just as the children of Israel followed the light in the wilderness, so Jesus is saying, follow me. I, I know the way out of darkness, and if you follow me, I will lead you to eternal life. Now that's the background for what we have just read. But I want you to think for just a moment about light. Now I'm not going to attempt to give you a definition of light, a scientific definition of light. I, I would get in over my head pretty quickly. But I do enough, know enough to know that light is essential for life. Without light, there is no light. Without light, the flowers would have, wouldn't have any color. The vegetation could not grow. The universe would descend back into chaos without light. 
The sun rules the day. Without sunlight, every living thing would eventually die off. Every living thing is dependent either directly or independently, uh, directly or indirectly on, on the plant kingdom, and the plant kingdom cannot survive without light. Light is essential to life. And light is a theme in John's gospel. He picks it up in the first chapter, carries it all the way to the end chapter. I think 23 times John mentions light. I want to look at just this verse, just this one verse. And I'm going to use it to bring out three facts about Jesus Christ. The first is what I would call the identification of Jesus Christ. I am the light of the world. Now, 34 sermons into the Gospel of John, we already know that John is the gospel of the deity of Jesus Christ. On every page and in every scene, he emphasizes that Jesus was, Jesus is the very Son of God. That is why whenever you have occasion to deal with cults that deny the deity of Jesus Christ, bring them to the Gospel of John. He has the greatest defense of that doctrine. And one of the ways that, that John emphasizes that or makes the case is he takes the titles of God the Father and he applies them to God the Son. The titles for Jehovah in the Old Testament he gives to Jesus in the New Testament. There's a theological strain that runs through the Gospel of John. It's found in the seven I am statements. We've talked about them. They form a structural backbone for this book. When Moses in Exodus 3 encountered God in the burning bush, God introduced himself to Moses as, I am that I am. Make, just make sure that you don't miss it. It is all in capital letters. I am that I am. And when you talk to Israel, you tell them that the I am has sent me. I, he is the I am. Well, when you come to the Gospels, Jesus comes on the scene and he takes that title and he gives it to himself and he is claiming a unity with the Father that no other man would ever dare to claim. And they understood that. In fact, you're in chapter 8. Go to the end of chapter 8 if you would. The end of chapter 8, look at verse number 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I said to you, Before Abraham was, I am. And there's the title. And the Jews knew exactly what, they was, what he was saying, because in the very next verse, they took up stones to stone him, because that was blasphemous. He's taken the title of Jehovah God, and he's taken it for himself. Come over to John chapter 18, if you would. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna use our Bibles this morning. And so, so John 18, look at verse number 4. This is Gethsemane scene. John 18 and verse 4, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, sent forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am he. Well, look what happens in verse number six. As soon then as he said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Just him uttering those words was powerful enough for those soldiers to fall backward. And it's not just that this is who I am, but I am who I am. Using that title for himself. So seven times in the Gospel of John, we have an I am statement. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. 
I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Those seven statements. And so when Jesus says in John 8 and verse number 12, when Jesus says that I am the lion of the world, it's a double claim to deity because number one, it's not only taking the title of Jehovah God to himself, but it's also that Jehovah God was the true light in the Old Testament. And Jesus says that I am the light just as my father is the light. So for Jesus to say, I am the light of the world, he is unmistakably identifying himself co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father. The very essence, the very nature, the very being of God the Father. But not just that. In saying that he is the light of the world, he is also saying that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that has been sent from heaven. You see, the scribes would have known that, that, that there's so many prophecies in the Old Testament that said that this coming Messiah is going to be a light to the world. That's a theme that we've been very familiar with. And when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, he's reaching back to those prophecies and he's saying, hey, those pertain to me. Yeah, if I told your finger right here, let, let's, let's, let's do Bible study real quick. Go to Isaiah chapter 9, would you? Isaiah chapter 9. I'm already there. You should be there. Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, look at verse number 1. Isaiah 9 and verse 1. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. Here's what Isaiah is saying. He is saying that there's going to come a day when there is going to be a light that shines in Galilee. And verse 1 is describing when the Assyrians came into the land and they took the people into captivity. And it was a very dark time for Israel. And for many, many centuries, Israel well in a depressing light both politically and spiritually but the prophet said the prophet said that one day there will be a light that's going to come to those people that dwell in darkness look at verse 2 the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shine they have been in darkness, that part of Israel, Galilee, but one day there will be a great light that will shine upon them. Now, if you're not sure who that's talking about, all that you have to do is go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and Matthew, Matthew talks about the Galilean ministry, John skips it, but here's how Matthew introduces the Galilean ministry. Look at Matthew 4 in verse 12. Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali. Does that sound familiar to you? that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and in them which sat in the region in shadow of death, light is sprung up. Isaiah chapter 9 says there'll be a light come to the Gentiles and Matthew borrows that phrase and says that when Jesus went into Galilee, that was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. He's the light is what he is. Are you still in Isaiah? You should be. Isaiah 42. Isaiah number 42 if you would. Isaiah 42 is the first of the four servant songs in Isaiah. 
And these are specific prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. And he's coming as the servant of the Lord to do the will and the work of God. Isaiah 42, look at verse number one. Behold my servant whom I behold, mine elect in whom my soul delighted. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. When he comes, he's not coming as a military conqueror, but he's coming in meekness and quietness. He's not going to be an agitator and an instigator in the street. He says in verse number three, a bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged. That's a blessing right there. He shall not fail nor be discouraged. He come tenderly and he faces much opposition, but he's not gonna fail and he's not gonna be discouraged. He's gonna accomplish the work that he came to do. Look at verse five. Thus saith the Lord. Now, 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 now the Lord is speaking to his servant. The Lord have called thee and thus saith the Lord God, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles, not coming just to be the redeemer of Israel, he's coming as a light to the Gentiles. Now, now, now that's just a little sampling of prophecies that says that the Messiah comes, he's coming as a light. So when John begins to write, he takes that theme up, go to John chapter one with me if you would. He takes this theme up, he's making a direct link. John one and verse number four, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. What John is doing is he is reaching back 700 years to the prophecies of Isaiah, and he is saying that Jesus, Jesus is that light that has come into the world. And John front loads his gospel with this theme, and he's gonna carry it all the way throughout, but he lays down on the first page that Jesus is that light, he is that light that has come. He carries this theme all throughout. Now, 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 now what did Jesus mean? By using this metaphor of a light, I, I am a light. Well, well, obviously Jesus is not a light bulb. He's obviously not a candle. It's not like Jesus has some eminence glowing about him when he walked about and he lit up the dark room. And that, that's not what it's talking about. Light is a metaphor. It is simply a figure of speech that stands for something else. Light, light represents knowledge in the Bible. There, there is an intellectual component to the light of the world. So when somebody makes a new discovery, we say that the light has turned on or they have seen the light. And when Jesus Christ came, he is the greatest revelation of God the Father the world has ever known. There was knowledge of God through creation. There's knowledge of God through conscience. 
There is knowledge of God even in the Old Testament scriptures. But Jesus reveals the Father like no other revelation. In fact, Jesus reveals the Father so much that he would say to Thomas that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. One and the same. That's, that's why we say that you cannot know God outside of Jesus Christ. A man says that he believes in God, but he doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. He's either deceived or he is a deceiver. Because Jesus would say, you can't know the Father apart from me. Light, light is knowledge. But then light represents salvation. The whole world lieth in the darkness of sin. And when a man is saved, it is a light that comes into his soul and it brings salvation. Isaiah 49 talks about the light of salvation that's come to the ends of the earth. We, we live in a world that is enshrouded in spiritual darkness. Our, our society is so dark, is it not? It, it is such a dark world that we live in. Blind to truth, blind to their own spiritual condition, blind to the judgment that is coming. The world, the world cannot see the truth about itself. The world cannot see the truth about Jesus Christ. The world cannot see the truth about the systems of the world. The world cannot see the truth about salvation. But when you get saved, the light of the glorious gospel shines in your heart and it gives you new understanding. Getting saved is like having the light come on. The gospel, it's a blazing light that dispels the darkness of the lost soul. All light is salvation. So Jesus identifies himself as the light of the world. It's a light so bright that it illuminates every man in the world. Matthew Henry said, one sun lights the entire world, so one savior lightens every man. What a dark world this would be without the light of Jesus Christ shining every corner of the earth. And so back to my text, it says something about the identification of Christ. But then I want you to notice in our text, it says something about the invitation of Christ. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me. Now it's stated as an, and as an indicative, it's a statement, but I believe it's an invitation. The most repeated invitation from the lips of Jesus in the Gospels is, follow me. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Philip, follow me. Matthew, follow me. If any man take up his cross and follow me. My sheep hear my voice and know me, and they follow me. So Jesus stands before a very lost crowd. Some are confused about him, some are biblical about him, some are antagonistic against him, and he invites those people to become his followers, not to follow a church, not to follow a creed, not to follow a code, not to follow a cause, but to follow Christ, not to take up a religion, not to add some new ritual, but to follow Jesus. To universal call, anyone, anywhere, anytime, come follow me. So what does it mean to follow Christ? Well, I think it means to completely give yourself to him. To make a break from the world, to pursue a life that's pleasing to Christ. And know that Jesus will not follow you. You must follow him. Because so many people have their life all mapped out. And if I could get Jesus just to sign on to it, then we'd make a good team. Oh, that's not how it works. Jesus not following your course of life. Jesus bids you to follow him. And by the way, he doesn't say where we're going. Doesn't tell you where the destination is going to lead. Right. You just follow. 
I believe that the modern gospel has made a very grievous error in making salvation nothing more than a one-time decision. Now, now don't, 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 don't misread me, all right? I, I read a letter yesterday from a ministry that we don't support, and, and they had a youth camp or some kind of meeting, and they had a 1,010 decisions. Decisions. Well, what is that? Decision to do what? What, 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 what decision, what, 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 what was the decision to, 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 I don't even know what that means. And there are some, there are some who would make salvation nothing more than making a decision for Jesus. I, I don't like that word, to be honest with you. I, I, I prefer Bible words. But it almost sounds like when well, you got a little bit of religion and a little bit of fire insurance and you just go your way otherwise. But following Jesus is not just a one-up deal. It is a daily walk. It is studying his life so that you might emulate his life. It is to be wholly committed to him. It is to follow Jesus wherever he goes. It's to obey whatever he requires. It's to sacrifice whatever he demands. That's what it means to follow Jesus. I, I think just to flesh it out, there's some words I think that you could use to describe it. I, I think it obviously includes obedience. There's no real Christianity without obedience. When you get saved, you enter into a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, that's my disciple. I think the following Jesus obviously involves repentance. It is to turn your back on your life of sin and to set your face toward righteousness. If you think that you can follow Christ without renouncing your sin, you are dreadfully confused. I believe that it obviously involves submission. Jesus talks about taking up your cross and leaving father and mother behind in other relations. There is a cost. There is a price to pay. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Putting on a yoke is a symbol of submission. Discipleship is not simply a door to be entered into. It is a path to follow. And I believe that you can be saved without being a follower of Jesus Christ. Not everyone who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior has gone on to become his disciple. You can be saved and you can be a disobedient believer. You can turn your back to sin in stiff-neckedness, in a stiff neck against submission. But can you say, I am a true follower of Jesus Christ? Follow me. I was thinking about the imagery of that light in the wilderness. And remember the Feast of the Tabernacles, it commemorates the wilderness wanderings. And part of that was the light that God gave them, not just to light the way, but to guide them. It was a pillar of fire by night. It was a cloud by day. I believe it was the same cloud, only it was lit up with fire at night. Here were the restrictions. When the cloud moves, you move. When the cloud stays, you stay. When the cloud stays in place, you stay right there. When the cloud moves, you move. It doesn't matter if the cloud's been there for a day, if it's been there for a week, if it's been there for a month, if it's been there for a year. Don't move until the cloud moves. You may be uncomfortable where you are. You may be comfortable where you are. You may like the spot or not like the spot you're camped in. It doesn't matter. You only move when the cloud moves. So every morning, Brother Tommy, the Israelite would come out of his tent and he would look up. See if the cloud's still there. 
See if the cloud's moving. And if the cloud's moving, family, let's pack it up, put it on the wagon. We gotta go. He's following the cloud. You and I have something better than a cloud. You and I have the Holy Spirit inside of us. The presence of God was in that cloud. I have the presence of God inside of me. I don't look up. I look inward to the light of the Holy Ghost. And just as they were led by the cloud, we are led by the Spirit of God. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And when he says move, we move. And when he says stay, we stay. But just as they were followers of the cloud, so we follow Christ through the spirit of Christ that is in us. Are you a follower of Christ? So the text tells me something about the identification of Christ, the invitation of Christ. But then back to my text, it tells me something about the illumination of Christ. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. Darkness, strong imagery. For one thing, darkness is ignorance in the Bible. It's spiritual ignorance. False teaching or false gospel, they're related to the darkness of the mind. To be in the dark is to be ignorant of some things. But not just spiritual ignorance, but also spiritual wickedness. Darkness is wickedness, it's debauchery, it, it, it is sin. The whole world lieth in the darkness of this world. Getting saved is coming out of the dark. Ephesians 6 says that we are the children of the light. We are not children of the night. You, you, have you ever experienced a darkness so dark that you could feel? We don't really know what utter darkness is because there's so many sources of light. Even if in your house, when, when it is at the very darkest, you, you still have a nightlight. Or, or there's the LED light from the clock or from the microwave. There, there's something somewhere that's some kind of little faint light. But utter darkness is a picture of this world that, that is groping about in the night with no light penetrating, penetrating through. And apart from Christ, men grope in darkness and worldliness and ignorance and wickedness. And darkness gives birth to more darkness, so intellectual darkness becomes moral darkness. Jesus talked about people whose light is their darkness. So what they think is light is even more darkness. The world thinks that they are enlightened, but they're actually grouping about in the dark. But can I tell you that no matter how dark that it is, there's not enough darkness to put out the light. There is not enough darkness to put out the light. Do you realize, do you realize that the light is so powerful, it can penetrate to the darkest night. You make the room as dark as you possibly can. You block the windows off so no starlight or sunlight or moonlight can get in. You make it pitch black dark. And you light the faintest candle. And it will penetrate that darkness. Oh, I wish, I wish you wanted to hear me preach this morning. I really do. I'm telling you that you cannot make it so dark. You, you cannot make it so black that the light can't penetrate through. In fact, the darker the night, the brighter the light. 
That's why I think that some of you that come from a very, very dark place in sin, that when you get saved and the light shines into that dark life, it makes such a transformation that it seems that the light shines the brightest in those dark eyes. There's not enough darkness to put out the light. And Jesus says that if you'll follow me, if you'll follow me, I'll shine in your life so that you no longer walk in darkness. The light is not around you. The light is inside of you. So when you look at the big picture of your life, not five minutes last Thursday, but the big picture of your life, can you say that I am following the light, that I am walking in the light and not walking in the darkness? Because Jesus says that he'll bring you out of the darkness and you will walk in the light as he is in the light. I am notorious for being early to bed and early to rise. I just believe that when God turns the lights out, it's time to go to bed. No use to be up at night like that. There's nothing good that happens at night out in town. There's nothing. Whenever you read of some celebrity or some sports star that, that had a wreck or something happened that got arrested, it's always at 1.30 a.m., never 1.30 p.m. Well, what was you doing out there at 1.30? That's what I always say. What was you doing out there at 3 o'clock? You should have been home and in bed. So, so I, I don't know anything about the night life. I, I have no desire to be gallivanting around after dark. I like it in the light. And that ought to be the pattern of our life spiritually. Oh, to walk in the dark and in the light of his word and in the light of his spirit something that we walk in day by day. Thessalonians says that ye are the children of light, not the children, or ye are the children of light and the children of day. We're not the children of night nor of darkness. Some of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Oh, your life was so dark. Oh, it was so dark in ignorance and it was so dark in wickedness and debauchery. But when the light of the glorious gospel shone upon your heart, you see things that you never seen before. You understand things that you never saw before. And it dawned upon you the darkness of your sin. And it dawned upon you that God loved you enough to send his son to save you. And it dawned upon you that you could have forgiveness of sin and a new life. It dawned upon you that you could be made a member of God's family. And when the Life was turned on. You saw yourself like you'd never seen yourself before. And you saw the Savior like you'd never seen him before. You saw Jesus Christ like you'd never seen him before. Getting saved is having the light turned on. The darkness has been dispelled by the light of the gospel. And now there's a light inside of me. It's called the Holy Ghost. And it lights my way and it leads me in paths of life. Thank God for that. I am the light of the world. Can you say that your life is characterized by light or is it characterized by darkness? God has reached into the kingdom of darkness and he's rescued you, translated you into the kingdom of his dear son. And when you first got saved, it was as if the noonday sun shone in your light. It was so bright. And that light shines so brightly inside of you that people outside of you can actually see the light shine. You don't glow in the dark. It's not that. But you have become the light of the world. Let your light shine so that they may see your good works and glorify your God, your Father which is in heaven. 
they say. They say that when the temple priest would light those great lights in that court of women, that was so bright that it not only lit up the temple, but it really lit up Jerusalem. They say that for miles, miles, they didn't have street lights like today. So for miles and miles, you could look toward Jerusalem. When they lit that temple up, there was a glow. You could see those lights from miles and miles away. Then anywhere in Jerusalem that you were, you could feel just the eminence that came from those lights. And Jesus uses that imagery and says, I am the light of the world. A light shining inside of you so bright that it will be seen by those on the outside.